Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is, in Cor that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly pearl, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to take time to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 11. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to have it open, have it there in front of you. I think we'll be projecting some of the verses, but it's even better to have it right there in your hands so you can follow along. Uh, Listen to the following first-hand descriptions of depression. Maybe some of us can relate to some of these descriptions. One person says, like the worst day of your life, every single day. It feels like everything's falling apart and worthless, even if it's not. Someone else, Vicky, says, numbness. You want any emotion, not just to be happy. Being angry or sad would be better than being numb. Heather says, a distance between you and the world. You, you cannot see any tangible future, so there's a feeling of hopelessness. It takes extra effort to do anything because the world is so far away, and emotions really make it through the void, either so you are numb and distant, and all too often using lots of energy to prevent people from realizing how you actually feel. Gareth, it's like dragging around a massive stone, holding you back and weighing you down. Like when you're at the gym and you just can't see how you can push forward with even one more rep and everyone else around you is doing fine. Helen says, when I was younger, I described it as a feeling as though I had been run over by a bus. Not that it was painful, but that it was this huge weight on top of me that I couldn't move. People were always saying I should do this or try that, but they couldn't understand that I was pinned under it and couldn't get out. Sarah says, being surrounded by people that you love and say they want to help you, yet feeling terrifyingly alone and lost. 
Barry says, as an analogy, it's a bit like being lost at sea with rough waters, trying to tread water, believing yourself entirely alone, no hope of rescue, and knowing that you're going to run out of energy soon, and eventually one wave is going to be enough for you to sink under. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul shares with the Corinthians and, and with us via the Word of God his experience that is very much like this. It's an experience that we could classify as depression. And this wonderful letter, the whole letter of 2 Corinthians, and in particular this section of this letter, puts his own struggle front and center so that he can help the Corinthians and us understand something that's very important that we perhaps might miss, and that is that a mature Christian is not someone who is struggle-free and strong, but someone who can struggle at the deepest levels, yet at that point of greatest weakness, find his or her greatest strength. Maybe to say it more concisely, the truth that God brings the deepest comfort through the hardest suffering. I want to take us through this passage and to learn that point, but to see three sub-points as we go. First, we're going to see how God himself is deeply merciful and generously comforting. Second, that suffering and comfort are tied together. And thirdly, we would learn the comfort of life through the suffering of death. Let me just pray, take a moment to pray again for this message and our time before God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the truths here. I thank you, Lord, for each one that is here in this room and listening as well, and what you want to do in our lives today. We ask you for your presence and your power. I pray you'd help me to clearly and faithfully explain your word and proclaim it. And Lord, uh, as I do so, I would fade in the background and we would hear from you. And our lives would be transformed, and we would be freshly equipped to glorify you, to build each other up, and to make you known to the lost. We ask these things expectant, according to your will, Lord, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So first, God is deeply merciful and generously comforting. Verses 1 through 4, Paul starts out his letter here uh, with a blessing. Um, he blesses the people, and then he goes into a, a doxology. He, he starts his time by talking about what God is like. Now, he does this often, and this is not a mere formality. What he's doing is he's going to be grounding the Corinthians in the, in the major themes that he wants to address in the entire letter. He's hitting on this aspect of who God is and, and the interplay between suffering and comfort, weakness and power, and how in the Lord, in his ways, we, we understand how these things work and we live in a very different way than the world. As you're perhaps familiar with, the Corinthians are in many ways a very worldly church. They have a worldly perspective of looking at themselves, at looking at mature Christianity, at looking at God. And so Paul, in his ministry to them, wants to adjust their understanding. And so right away he does that by describing God as the Father of mercies, the God of all comforts. This is who God is. This is deep in the character of God. And so he starts with this doxology to draw their attention to this truth, to ground them in the Lord so that he can then minister to them in their situation. And he describes God as the Father of mercies and the God of all 
comfort, the Father of mercies. Mercies are blessings, undeserved kindnesses that God gives to us, ways that he supplies our need, ways that he takes note of our situation, ways that he looks upon us in our weakness, in our lostness, and because of his character alone, blesses us, brings us solutions, brings us answers, meets our needs. That's what mercies are. And so God is a God of mercy. He is the Father of mercies. He's a good Father. He doesn't give a stone instead of a loaf of bread, nor a scorpion instead of a fish. He comes with goodness and constant kindness and care. And, and you've probably seen this in your lives, and we have, and there are all sorts of examples that, that I can think of. There is one example I, I still remember to this day. Um, it was years ago when our oldest, who's now 33, was about five years old. And he saw the, one of those electric mini Jeeps. I don't know if a friend had one, or he saw it on television. And he said, Dad, uh, can I get one of those electric Jeeps? And uh, that was the beginning of my engineering career. We didn't have much money. They were like 300 bucks, and this is like 1992 or something like that. So I don't know, multiply that by two or three to get today's price. We just couldn't afford it. And I told him, like, I don't think we could buy one, Daniel, but, but let's ask God. Let's ask God somehow to supply an electric Jeep. So we got together, five-year-old and, and his dad. We prayed, and we just asked God for an electric Jeep. And we did it in a way we weren't demanding. We knew, you know, we, I wanted him to understand. We can't go to God and say, you must do this, you know. Uh, but you're gracious. And so we asked, and guess what? The next day in the neighbor's trash is an electric Jeep. The battery had run out, apparently, and so they threw it out. And me, the engineer, went and checked it out and said, hey, just needs a new battery, bought a new battery, and there was the electric Jeep for Daniel. It's a lesson that none of us have ever forgotten. And it was because of the Father of mercies, who cares enough to answer even a prayer like that. He's the Father of mercies. And that story is a, a trivial gift that illustrates the character of God and illustrates really the ultimate gift that demonstrates who he is and what he's like. Because he hasn't just given us things like electric jeeps, he's given us his very son. His glorious and perfect Son and, and all of His holiness and power and perfection. He sent His Son, He took on flesh for us, who lived this righteous life that we all know we ought to live, but we all fall short of. He fulfilled that. He lived it. He never failed. He always was loving. He always loved His Father. He always was merciful towards others. He always fulfilled the commandments. He was the one who fulfilled our righteousness. And the Father gave him to us in his life, and that life lived out for us. And not only that, but he went to the cross and offered up that righteous life in our place. That through simple faith, just simply turning from our sin and ourselves and receiving the gift of Christ, we might be forgiven and counted righteous and made part of the family. This is the ultimate mercy from the Father of mercies. This is who he is. He is the Father of mercies. Paul also says he's the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. If you go through this passage, you'll see the word all used multiple times. He's the God of all comfort. All is emphasized. All comfort for all sufferings, all or any affliction. 
There's no affliction that a Christian faces that doesn't qualify for God's comfort. There's no affliction that lacks access to the God of all comfort, to the comfort needed in that affliction. He is the one who comforts us, verse 4, in all our affliction. You see that? All our affliction. He's the God of all comfort for all our afflictions. That's so important to understand because there's times in life we think, well, not this one. This one's just too much. He's not here with me. But this tells us clearly he's, clearly he's the God of all comfort for all of our affliction. He's not the God of small comfort, but the God of all comfort in every trial we face. He brings comfort. He brings the help we need. It's important to understand this word comfort because in the English language and in the American context, when we hear the word comfort, we think comfy, right? We think of comfy, like comfort means I get to be comfy, which means pajamas and slippers, eating popcorn by a fire, drinking hot cocoa, watching a movie with friends or family, right? That's comfy, that's comfort. And though that might be the sort of comfort that God brings, that's really not what's being said here. That's not the meaning of the word. This is the word that's used for the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the, the word paraclete. Uh, and this is the idea of assistance. So the, the connotation is m more than just being comfy, but having the sort of assistance, the sort of help we need in our affliction. And that nuances this little differently. That's important to understand. It may involve slippers and cocoa, but it's made of stuff that's stronger and sterner than just that. It's made of the sort of help we need to make it through. That's what he's saying. He's the God who provides all the assistance we need for all of our affliction. There's no difficulty, there's no affliction that we're going to face where he is not sufficient to help us in that affliction. Bible commentator David Garland says, the comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing do, to do with a languorous feeling of contentment, not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pain, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. This is the sort of comfort God brings. I'll risk an illustration that perhaps I, I hope you can relate to if you're a, a Lord of the Rings fan. But in the story of the Lord of the Rings, you know uh, at the end they journey to Mount Doom taking this evil ring, Sam and Frodo come to that place and they are at the end of themselves. They are worn out entirely. Frodo bearing that ring is totally worn out, does not have another step in him, thirsty, hungry, frail, weighed down by the weight of the immense evil. He collapses. He can't go any further on this mission. Sam is there with him. He is tired as well. He's not able to take the ring himself, but what he does in the story is he picks up Frodo upon his shoulders and he carries him up the slopes of Mount Doom to dispose of the evil ring once and for all. This is a picture of the sort of comfort that Paul is talking about here because Sam comes, he does not take Frodo out of Mordor. The comfort and help he brings is not to remove Frodo from Mount Doom, he's still there. 
He doesn't take away the evil of the ring. He doesn't give Frodo water. Frodo is still suffering. But what Sam does do is he assists Frodo to see the mission through to the end. He brings him the comfort he needs to continue to walk out his mission. Even so, God comes to us in our sufferings, in our needs, so that we might find the strength to endure and even overcome. Jesus has told us, take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what it means when it says he is the God of all comfort. He is that friend that will never leave us better than Samwise Gamgee. He carries us to our final destination. It's important in this passage also to see, second point, that suffering and comfort are tied together. These things go together, lest we think that comfort merely just appears suddenly for no reason out of, out of thin air. It is connected to suffering. Comfort is connected to suffering in this passage, and I would submit throughout Scripture. And so Paul says that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. He's speaking of himself and the team, but he's modeling to the Corinthians the Christian life. So this applies to all Christians uh, to some degree, of course. So he's saying as they share abundantly in suffering, so they share abundantly in comfort. These things go together. And so what does he mean? It's important, I think, to stop and think about that. What does it mean to share in Christ's sufferings? Do you see that there, verse 5? For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. How can we possibly share in Christ's sufferings? We know Christ suffered and died on the cross. We know he atoned, he paid for our sins in his death, his righteous life offered for us. So are we atoning with Jesus? Is that what this means? Well, no. Because Jesus said on the cross in his atonement, speaking of his atonement, it is finished. The work is finished on the cross. There's no more atoning to be done. And certainly we could not add anything to that atonement. We are unsuitable sacrifices. But there is a category of suffering that Jesus endures with his church. The suffering that we experience in this life as his people, his body on earth, the church militant as it is called, suffers in this world. It's important to get that. To live in this world is to face suffering, suffering of various kinds. You will suffer for the sake of the mission at times. You will suffer just as a human being in a broken world. Job's sort of sufferings. And this is an important aspect of the Christian life that we mustn't gloss over. Jesus tells his disciples, right? I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He promises trouble. In the world you will have tribulation. What's the answer that he offers for them? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul, when he's making disciples on his journeys through Asia Minor and elsewhere, he instructs the people in these things so they would understand this is a basic part of Christianity. He says uh, in Acts 14, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Tyconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter 
the kingdom of God. That's how he's making disciples. He's saying, guys, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. You'll get to that final destination, but you'll get there through many tribulations. It's promised. So we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? We should recognize that this is part of the design. We should recognize that this is here in 2 Corinthians and throughout the Bible. We should even welcome the benefits that come through suffering, such as abundant comforts. And this comfort then gets shared with others so that in their sufferings they might be comforted through us. The truth that we see here is that the Christian life has plenty of suffering, but more importantly, in Jesus has plenty of comfort. The comfort we receive is greater than our sufferings, but we must learn to live in the reality that we will suffer. And, and I think it's obvious in our passage and throughout Scripture, but we still forget this. And we expect it not to happen, and when it does, it surprises us. And we can complain, and we can question and wonder, and, and part of that's just natural. But there's an aspect of it that's just, we're surprised. We're not well-trained in the Word in this and, and expecting it. But think of the other arenas of life where it, it's expected. People expect it. Think of athletes, right? No athlete thinks that I can just be, you know, a, a, a great gymnast or a great runner or whatever without pain. No pain, no gain, right? You know that there has to be work. There's the pain, the losses, the lessons, the sweat, the sore muscles, the, the, the mean coaches. There's all these things that happen to get you to that place where you're a successful athlete. Athletes get it. Mothers bearing children get it, right? You know, if you've, if you've born a child, um, that you go through a lot of suffering. It's a lot of hard work. And then at the end of that, it's actually, uh, it, it's compared to 80, the average woman expends 85,000 calories bearing a child. And then at the end of that, they compare that actually the same amount of calories to climb Mount Everest. So you go through this climbing of Mount Everest, but then when you get to the top of Mount Everest, then you have to give birth to the child. And you know the pain and the hardship of that, but you also know that that gets you to the place where there's the blessing of a baby, a new life. So we see this in life, but we often miss it. And yet it's these experiences of suffering, of affliction, of even abundant sufferings that bring abundant comfort. I must say in my years, I've been pastoring about 20 years, and my most significant contributions to the people of God and the mission of God are born out of some of my most significant afflictions and troubles. Just to share one of them, I was an intern. I had left my job. I was a research engineer, loved my job, had served as a leader in my church. God had called me to pastor, and, um, and so we had chosen to take steps to, to sacrifice, to be trained. And in the process of doing that, uh, it was one Monday morning, and, um, and we were living in a, a we had left our beautiful home and we were living in a smaller home and, um, and I had taken the kids, we, Peg and I had taken the kids out and enjoyed a morning and I was taking a nap and I woke up from my nap. And um, at that moment as I'm waking up in this, my nap, this thought came to my mind, what have you done to your family? 
They don't have a home. They have to go to a park to enjoy themselves. You ruin their lives. It was just a thought that came in, I think, from the devil at that moment. And what I did, which I shouldn't have done, I engaged the thought. And I started to think, wow, what have I done to my family? And I started to actually follow that downward spiral of thinking how much I had ruined their lives and where this is going to go and how this is all going to fail. And I risked everything to leave my career, a good career, to become a pastor, to make no money, to have to ship my kids around to different places, living in five or six different houses, to try a church plant that probably won't work and will fail and all these things. And I went into this downward spiral. And I got to the place actually where I started to have panic attacks. And so I was overwhelmed with this sense of dread, and it affected me so deeply. It was a dark night of the soul, and I went on actually for days, even weeks, of not being able to operate off of that one moment and where it took me. And, and I started to think, oh no, obvious now that I can't be a pastor if I'm suffering at this level, but I had, had some really good pastors around me who understood these truths. And they did not say, okay, Paul, you're disqualified, forget it. They said, they, they ministered to me and they helped me remember the things I needed to know. And the Lord did, met me in that time in such a significant way. I can remember vividly, actually, um, when you're in this place, for me, it was a dark night of the soul. It was like Paul's experience here. I felt the sentence of death. I felt these things and, and, and sleep was no solace. And I would wake up in the middle of the night feeling panicked, feeling awful. I'd get on my knees and I would picture Christ crucified for me on the cross. And I was just picture myself at the cross, just holding on to the cross and saying to myself, you know what? I might lose everything. I might lose my mind. They might have to put me in a hospital, but I'll never lose Christ. And I hung on to that cross in my mind. And that gave me strength. And I came out of that dark place bit by bit. And now, 20 years later or so, I better understand those who are suffering those sorts of things. And I better believe than I did before. I have a stronger faith that Jesus does meet us in those dark places and does rescue us. And the comfort that he gives is greater than the affliction we might face. That's what Paul is getting at here. This reality that in these afflictions that seem so overwhelming, these abundant sufferings we face, he brings abundant, overcoming comfort for us. So I just want to challenge you to let that sink in. Maybe reevaluate your life. Maybe reevaluate those sufferings, those weaknesses, those hardships, and start to see them in light of God's Word as things that are meant to be a context where you will encounter great comforts. And then having received that comfort can now offer it to others as they go through sufferings. And all that is to the glory of God. Finally, you're hearing this already. This is this other key point in verses 8 through 11. Suffering teaches us not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul, Paul's honesty in this letter is actually shocking. And that's on purpose. He wants the Corinthians to see what maturity looks like. He wants to change their mindset that the mature person is the, is the all-competent, ever-conquering, ever-confident, ever-joyful, never-suffering sort of leader. And he wants to say, no, that's not it at all. Let me put my own heart on display, my own experience on display before you. 
He's a guy who has struggled with deep depression and despair. And he says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He does not want them to be unaware of the affliction that he and his team suffered. He does not want them to be unaware of how deeply burdened he felt, how he despaired of life. These are the sorts of word that, the words that indicate someone was so depressed and despairing, they were, they were even suicidal. That's the sort of thing that he's saying here. And he does not want them to be unaware of this. He wants to put his life on display for them. He says, we had felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's a, a best attempt to translate a, a difficult sentence in, uh, in Greek into English. And more literally, what Paul says here is, we ourselves, in ourselves, have had the sentence of death. So it's kind of an awkward way of speaking in English. But what Paul's trying to say is, we ourselves, in ourselves, had the sentence of death. And so what he's saying is this sentence of death, this feeling of death, this feeling of, of, of darkness and death affected everything about us. We had it in ourselves. It affected our mind, our emotions, probably their bodies as well. And if you've been in that place of dark despair, you understand, right? You know what it feels like when you're in that place where, where the darkness overwhelms you and all grows dark and you feel it in your body. All you see are shades of gray and darker gray. It's a chore just to face a regular day. Beautiful summer days bring no delight. Evenings bring no relief. Only a half-conscious darkness of soul that can overwhelm you. That's what Paul's talking about. Whatever went on, we don't know the details, that he and his team went through something that was that dark, that difficult, and he wants to put it on display for the Corinthians. He wants to dispel their foolish notions of what Christians and Christian leaders ought to look like. He wants to show them that they, as leaders, are weak people with them, subject to the ups and downs of life. Suffering in this broken world, suffering for their faith choices, and at times feeling like death itself. The point here is Christians can struggle very deeply at times. And some Christians struggle very deeply pretty much all the time. This is part of what goes on. And, it, and it's part of being humans in a broken world. It's reality, but it's pointing us somewhere else. We'll get to that shortly. And if you look deeply at people's lives, you will see this. We try to make ourselves look good. We don't like to show these things. Paul wants to put it on display for the Corinthians that they would understand that this is a reality, and this is actually ultimately a good thing. God is doing things through afflictions to bring comfort and to teach us to put our hope in the God who raises the dead. Perhaps you know Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers and church leaders in the English-speaking world has ever known. Back in the 1800s, he preached nearly 3,600 sermons. He wrote 150 books. 
Every week he preached four to ten times. He would read six big books a week. He was probably had an IQ of 200. He was just a genius, very gifted. He knew all 6,000 of his congregants by name. He directed a theological college. He ran an orphanage. He oversaw 66 different Christian charities. Tremendous man used in a powerful way, yet he struggled with severe depression. He speaks about this. He said it in one of his writings, um, the minister's fainting fits, I believe it is. He says, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. He had to take long breaks from ministry to recuperate. So even though there was all this success, there was severe depression and weakness in his life. Perhaps you know Abraham Kuyper, one of the greatest Christian leaders in recent history. He was a pastor, university professor, philosopher, theologian, prime minister of Holland, ran a major newspaper, led a major political party. Uh, his birthday was a national holiday in Holland. His Christian thinking on Christ and culture is probably some of the best and most compelling to this day. Yet he went through many serious trials. He suffered as his son was estranged from him. He suffered from political enemies. He suffered serious disappointments. He suffered three nervous breakdowns that required months to recuperate. These men in their lives, along with Paul, teach us that Christians struggle deeply. And yet Paul doesn't leave us there. It isn't just that point, but we need to get that point because we might miss that point and we might think that Christians don't or I'm the only Christian that struggles deeply. And Paul is seeking to dispel that and to lead us through that to something that God is doing through our struggles. Paul says that this sentence of death for all of its horror had a bright side. It was given that they would not rely on themselves. That was to make us, Paul says, not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God who raises the dead. This sentence of death, this deep, dark despair that Paul was feeling was given so that he would not rely on himself, instead would rely on God who meets him in that place of death and raises the dead. That's what God is doing, that our hope would not be in ourselves, but in God. You see, suffering does something with our self-reliance. It kills self-reliance. It, it makes us face the reality that we, in and ourselves, can do nothing apart from God. And we need the Lord. We need to put our hope in the God who raises the dead, the only one who can overcome, who has overcome this world, the only one who overcomes our sin, the only one who overcomes our weakness, that we put our hope in God who raises the dead. I, um, I was an engineer, and I'm a relatively good mechanic, at least I think so, and I try my own car repairs frequently. But I want to tell you, in case you're thinking about doing it yourself, don't believe the YouTube videos, because it doesn't just take you 30 minutes, usually. Usually when I do it, um, I can figure out what to do, but something always happens. The wrench falls down into a recess of the engine compartment. The, a bolt breaks, a part breaks. I end up with a bigger mess sometimes than I started with. And yet, the best thing I can do at that point 
when I've come to that place is to recognize I need somebody who's an expert here. My failure in my car repairs forces me to face the reality that they have these people who are experts, they're called mechanics. And most people take their cars to those people who are experts. The, the, my suffering, so to speak, and my car work teaches me not to rely on myself for my car, but on my mechanic, on the expert for my car. And the point here is in life, our sufferings, our afflictions make us realize we need an expert. And there's only one person who's overcome this world. He understands us in our sorrows. He understands the trials. He understands the challenges. And he has overcome. Jesus is that one. And your difficulties are geared and designed by God that you would not rely on yourself, but on the God who raises the dead. Jesus, the one who has been raised from the dead, who's victorious over sin and death, and is there for you. That's what God's after in our lives. Now it's interesting if you look through the passage that Paul is certainly pointing toward the, the, this final resurrection because Christ's resurrection is a picture of the resurrection that awaits all of his people. And so he's the God who raises the dead. Certainly he's speaking of Christ. He's speaking of our resurrection. But Paul's also addressing this idea of a temporal resurrection, in a sense maybe a metaphorical resurrection for this sentence of death. That God does meet us in our temporal struggles to provide temporal relief. That's part of what he does. And so we see it in how Paul says it. He says in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. So he, we were in this place of, of deep, dark struggle and depression, and he delivered us, and he will deliver us for the next time. And then he says, you also must help us by prayer. So there's this aspect as well that God meets us to deliver us from these temporary sufferings also. There's a temporal resurrection. And, and so we should go to him for this, asking him for relief, and he brings relief. But we don't get to call the shots. We do know that that final resurrection and the power, the comfort we need, that, that comfort that meets us in our afflictions will be there to carry us through. In my years as a pastor, I've been able to uh, pastor many wonderful people. Two of my favorites were a man named John and a man named Ken. They illustrate the points that I'm making. Ken came to our church early on. It was 2002. Ken had been a believer, had professed Christ at a fairly young age. But life and its troubles had come. Ken had gone through a lot of disappointments and a messy divorce. And he walked away from Christ. He walked away from Christ and he sought comfort in other things like yachting, money, his girlfriend. They moved in together. But then Ken got cancer sometime in his 50s, renal cancer. It grew to the point where his spine was compromised. He was on crutches with two months to live. And he came to us. God used that affliction to bring repentance in Ken's life. And he came to us when we were just starting as a brand new church. And I see him to this day on his crutches with those big blue eyes crying, saying, I only have two months to live, but I want to live them with Jesus. Ken and his girlfriend, Sue, who also had walked away from the Lord, they were married, and they were restored. And we told Ken, the greatest healing 
that could happen is the healing of your heart and the restoration of your walk with Christ. But God also does heal. We can't control that, but we can ask. He's a God who does provide these temporal sort of resurrections. He does meet us. So Ken, can we pray for you? And he said, yes. And so we gathered around. Ken, we prayed for him. And miracle of miracles. And next week or so, he went to his oncologist or his doctor. And the tumor had shrunk from a softball size down to like a marble. And it remained that way. We had asked God for 20 years for Ken's life. He ended up living 14 years longer after that and was a vital part of our church. This was a temporal resurrection for Ken, even though the greatest thing, of course, was this final resurrection that Ken came back to the Lord. But we asked for and received the temporal. My other good friend, his name was John. John was part of our original plant. He was just a wonderful, loyal friend, faith-filled, hardworking, made such a difference in the life of our church. He, he moved uh, to be part of our team. He met and married a wonderful woman. I got to officiate their ceremony. But one year later, John was diagnosed with cancer in his early 40s. We prayed, and we prayed for John. He didn't get better. He got worse. There was no miracle healing. Our friend Ken was one of the ones praying for him, and he, he struggled because Ken was a relatively old man whom God had healed, and here's John, a young man, not being healed. And we wondered, but we trusted God, and we asked. And we walked with John through that season of life, full of trials, full of afflictions, full of, of days and nights where the sentence of death hung heavy on him. But God answered our prayers for John in a different way, not in healing him physically, but strengthening him, bringing him that comfort to endure. And it was one of my greatest privileges to be with John as he drew his final breaths. He didn't want to die. He wanted to live. He wanted to have kids. He wanted to go on another church plant. But God had strengthened him to the point where even though he didn't understand, in those final moments with his final breaths, this is what he said, it's better this way. It's better this way. It's better this way. And those are the final things that John said. Because he knew the comfort and the promise of eternal life. He knew the comfort of the Lord meeting him. And so in both John's life and Ken's life, we see an illustration of what Paul's talking about. Of this truth for us. Of this reality that the Lord meets us in our afflictions. And he, he brings relief. And he brings strength. He brings comfort for us. And so as I close, I just want to call us to recognize the truths that are here. And I want to call us to see first that this is how the Christian life works. This is a perspective that we need. We need to be reminded of. We need to be adjusted in how we see things. We need to be adjusted in our expectations. We need to learn that these things are given so that we would put our hope in the God who raises the dead, not ourselves. Turn away from self-effort to put our hope in Him. And then we need to see what Paul says here that's so important at the end, and it's in the beginning as well. He says, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He calls them to, to see that this is a shared effort, that the comfort we receive we turn and share with others. And then we participate in prayer with others that they might be strengthened, that God would work in their lives. So in conclusion, just encourage you to think about these truths. 
consider your own life, your own perspective, and consider who around me needs to receive some of the comfort and prayer support that I've received. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for these dear people. You know them. You know what they're going through. You know their needs. And Lord, your word and these truths are so helpful. And I pray you would just build up this church, grant this comfort, bring relief, bring hope, a hope that overcomes. Glorify your name and shine this hope to a hurting world that needs to hear about you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.